You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. We have a biblical category for complaining. And the Psalms are full of them. But often, grumbling does display, even if warranted, some lack of trust. And that's what I I want us to see as we're kind of looking at God's people Israel here in our passage this morning. A lack of trust is marked by grumbling and complaining. Our overall theme and title for Exodus is based on God's revelation of himself. And today in this section, we're going to read from 1522 through 1827. We'll cover all that. We're seeing God show himself to be a provider. I am your God who provides for you. The question is, do we trust that God will actually provide? That's the question I think we can ask as we look at our text today. Do I trust, or rather, let me say it this way, am I actively trusting that God has, that God is, and that God will provide for all of my needs out of His abundance? And what God shows Moses and Israel, and I pray by the Holy Spirit, would show us this morning is that God will always provide as we follow him by faith do we trust that god will provide and do we believe that he will always provide as we follow him by faith now every time we've we've approached a text that's multiple chapters um, we've tried to read some anchor passages and we're going to do that today except for instead of reading them all at once we're going to read them as we get to them it just made more sense in the flow of this larger section Um, so let's read our first passage. You can start in, uh, Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. Um, it'll be on the screen. I invite you to read along in your Bible so you can see it for yourselves. Exodus 15, 22 through 27. We'll start here and then we'll read some other ones as we go. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water." Well, let's stop there for a second. I'm asking the question, do we trust in God's provision? And I'm just making the assertion, the statement, that God will always provide as we follow Him. What I want to look at as we work our way through the text is how. How does God provide? It's one thing to say, God will provide. 
And then we go, okay, the follow-up question is naturally, well, how? How does God provide? And here in our passage, God shows five different ways that he brings provision. Let's start with our first one. One, he tests us. This is the first way that God provides for his people. He tests us. The people have just crossed through the Red Sea onto dry land. They watched with awe as the Egyptian army was buried under the water. And Moses leads the people away from the edge of the sea and into the wilderness. And after three days, they're running low on water. They came to a place where the water was bitter. Mara, which means bitter. In verse 24, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? You let us out here, Moses. And now we're out of water. We're thirsty. So the Lord shows Moses a log. He throws it into the water. The water becomes sweet. And right here, Yahweh himself sets the stage and the parameters for his relationship with Israel going forward. Leading them through the wilderness, the giving of the law, which we'll get to in verse, chapters 19 and 20 next week. Pastor Devin's going to preach on those. Through all of his covenant relationship with his people, God setting the stage. Look at the second half of verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. Did you catch that? He tested them. He provides for them sweet water as opposed to bitter. Now it's drinkable. And then the Lord speaks. He tested them. And this is not because God is unaware of the conditions of the hearts of the people. He's not like, hey, let me see what you're made of. God already knows who they are. But in order that they might know the condition of their own hearts. This is not for God's benefit, but for theirs. So he tests them. Will you trust God to do what he commands or not? That's the question God is asking. Will you follow what I'm telling you? Or won't you? And we'll see in the coming verses, God's people fail this test time and time again. But before we get there, I'd like to explore this idea of God testing his people as part of how he provides for his people. Maybe you've seen it before. It's a small tag inside of a a shirt or a piece of clothing you buy. Maybe it's a sticker. Or Or on the bottom maybe of a clock or something you purchase. Right? There's a sticker that says, like, inspected by number 8. Tested by number 24. Why do these exist? Well, there's a testing process, right? An examination that happens before that thing leaves the factory. Not only to check that whatever it is has been completed properly, but as proof to the end user that, yes, number 8 inspected this shirt. It is good to go. Now, this illustration falls apart because I have absolutely purchased things where I'm like, number eight, you don't do a good job, right? The shirt where like this sleeve is a little off or the pocket's crooked or it's missing a button. Maybe I need to shop different places. I don't know. The point is we've all experienced that. But testing is necessary. In this case, testing is necessary to show us if we have learned what God has been teaching us. That's what God is doing with Israel. Remember, It's not been that long now that they've 
come out of Egypt with all the plagues and all of the miraculous things that happened there. And God led them through the wilderness. He was before them with a pillar of fire and, and smoke and brought them to the red, edge of the Red Sea and opened up the sea and they walked on dry land. And here they're like, hey, God, we're thirsty. Why did you bring us out here again? Are they learning what God's been teaching them? The problem is, is that so often for us, under testing, under hardship, we think that, well, God must not care about us anymore. He must have forgotten. If he did, this wouldn't be happening. So rather than lean into God and trust that he is indeed all, working all things for our good and for his glory, we might follow the example of Israel here and treat God with suspicion. Trust in God diminishes. Now, we wouldn't say that out loud, but I think that's what's happening internally when we ask that question. Writer, pastor, and worship leader Bob Coughlin said this. I read it this week. It was really good. We withhold trusting God pending evidence from God. Instead of realizing that God tests us to show us what we've learned or not, we assume difficulties prove God doesn't care. Rather than seeing God is testing us, we test Him. You see, part of God's good and gracious provision for us is that He tests us. It's actually for our good. Now remember, God is not testing us to see what we'll do. We shouldn't view Him as a mad scientist running experiments on humanity to see what happens. That's not what's happening here. Rather, God is a faithful teacher who is training us to trust him. And the testing of us proves to us that he is trustworthy to show us where our faith is strong and where it is still weak. The apostle James says this in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is using trials and tests and through these trials is building in us steadfastness, steadiness, perseverance. And this is part of how we are being sanctified. It's a big $10 word meaning we are being transformed. Specifically, the New Testament says we are being changed. We are being fashioned into the likeness of Jesus. And the likeness of Jesus comes through suffering like Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that all hardships are tests in the same way. It's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that every trial in our lives is an opportunity to trust God. And through the Holy Spirit, that God will do what He will do for our good and his glory. God provides for us by testing us. He says so right here in Exodus 15. The second way that God provides for us. How does God provide for us? One, he provides by testing us. Two, he provides by giving us daily bread. Read with me the beginning of Exodus chapter 16. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. He set out from Elam, Excuse me, they set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. That's just a geographical location. It's not a wilderness full of sin. 
just in case you were curious, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling, grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of my people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. As if they needed another reminder that he was the Lord. Again, Red Sea, Egyptian army, plague after plague after plague, his own presence with them. And here, even in their grumbling, the Lord is merciful. I want you to know that I am the Lord. And if that takes feeding you bread from the sky, I'm going to do it. People were hungry. A month and a half of traveling had used up all the reserves that they had brought with them. And gathering food for that many people, you could imagine, was a pretty impossible task. They seemed to long for Egypt. Did you hear that language there? Better that we have, would have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. Because at least there we sat around the fire with pots of meat. Here we have nothing. Better to be a slave, as they spoke last week, in the land of Egypt than to trust God in uncertainty. And so here, people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And Moses makes an important point. You're not grumbling against me, Moses says. Who am I? I'm just Moses. The Lord has led you out here. So if you're grumbling, you're grumbling against Yahweh. Now we opened talking about the weather. Author Jerry Bridges makes this observation. Complaining about the weather seems to be a favorite American pastime. Sadly, we Christians often get caught up in this ungodly habit in our society. But when we complain about the weather, we are actually complaining against God who sent us our weather. We are, in fact, sinning against God. When you look at a picture of Jerry Bridges, you see this nice, gentle old man who's just telling us like it is. The people aren't grumbling against Moses. They're grumbling against God. Moses just happens to be an easy target. 
Now, it's not wrong for God's people to ask God to provide for their needs. In fact, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray this, give us this day our daily bread. And that's a reference specifically to this event in Israel's history. That's where this part of the prayer comes from. Daily bread. But there is a difference between asking God to provide for our needs, which we're not only invited to do, but commanded to do, and grumbling against God because our needs aren't met. It's a distinction with a difference. And sometimes the line between asking and complaining is blurry. But God in His mercy provides miraculous provision. Every day when the people wake up, a light wafer-like bread is settled on the ground, and the people are to go out every morning and collect just enough bread for that day's need. An omer, approximately two quarts per person in each household. And whether they seem to collect a little or a lot, there was never too much and always enough. And they were supposed to go to bed each night with an empty basket, not saving any, and to trust that God would provide bread again tomorrow. This is what God instructed them to do. It would be like you and I clearing out the fridge tonight before bed, clearing out the pantry, using it all up, and then just saying, okay, God will provide for us Cheerios and milk tomorrow morning. I don't know if you're Cheerios people, but it's like the best cereal ever invented. That's not the word of the Lord. That's just my opinion. Right? If that's what it would be like for us, clearing out the pantry and saying, God's going to provide what we need. So what's going on here? Now, I don't think God is telling them to not plan ahead, to not prepare, to not save in all circumstances. Scripture gives helpful instruction and wisdom in many places about how to faithfully labor as under the Lord, to count costs before embarking on a project. Or as Proverbs 20 says, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn, he will seek at harvest and have nothing. Right? You can't harvest if you don't plant. This is not an excuse for laziness. It's an invitation to trust. And there's a difference. As a Christian, if everything that we have, everything that we have comes from God, including our money, then in order to be good stewards of all of God's money, because that's what it is, then we need to be intentional and wise in how we save and invest and spend God's money. How we spend God's time, which is His time on our calendars. How we spend other resources, the gifts He's given us, the family He's entrusted us with, the community that we're a part of. We need to be intentional and wise in how we save, invest, and spend God's provision. The key, I think, is this. How do we make sure that all of our planning is carried out not with the goal of being financially independent from God's daily provision? With our money, for example. How do we plan to invest and save and plan in such a way so that we're not independent from God's provision? You can't always tell that on a balance sheet or on an investment portfolio report. You have to check that in the heart. The lesson here is one of trust. Do I trust that God will provide in the way that he has said, according to the means he has given? And apparently, some of the people of Israel failed this test. They tried to collect extra and store it away till the next day. They weren't quite sure that God would provide again the next day, so they kept a little extra 
under the bed or in a basket. And the next morning, it was full of worms and maggots and rot. Except on the sixth day. On the sixth day, God told the people, on this day, you should collect enough for two days. So that tomorrow, on the Sabbath, you can rest. You can dedicate that day to the Lord for worship. And again, some people failed and tried to go out on the Sabbath and recognized and there was no food on the ground for them. Because God said there wouldn't be. So God did three miracles here with this bread. One, he provided it in the first place, miraculously, from the sky. Two, he gave them exactly what they needed for that day and took away the rest. Except on the sixth day, three, where he preserved that bread for two days so that he could also provide for them rest. In each of these provisions, the people had to trust. They had to trust that God would provide, and they uh, exercised trust by actually going out and collecting it. They went out and said, God, I trust you, so I'm going to go out and collect what you've told me to collect for the day. Two, they had to trust that God would provide again tomorrow. And so they'd be willing to go to bed with an empty pantry and not try to hoard what they thought they needed. And three, they had to trust that God would preserve what they had collected on day six so they had enough to eat tomorrow for the Sabbath. And this was the pattern of God's provision for 40 years, Exodus tells us. 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness, every day, every day, God provides their daily bread. The question is, do we trust that God will provide daily for our every need? There's a point here to be made about Jesus and bread. We're going to get to that in a second. I want to tie it together with our third point. Uh, how does God provide for us? He tests us. Two, how does God provide for us? He gives daily bread. Three, how does God provide for us? He is patient with us. Look at chapter 17. Skip ahead a little. Verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camp, <clears throat> excuse me, camped it at Rephidim. <coughs> but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us? Or not. Stop there. God provides for them by destroying the Egyptian army. God provides for them by giving them sweet water instead of bitter water. He provides for them with manna from heaven every morning. And we didn't even have time to talk about it. But quail would come every evening. 
And here, the people are thirsty again, and they quarreled with Moses. They initiated a fight with Moses. And Moses replies, why do you test the Lord? And then we see that word again. But the people grumbled against Moses. Moses says they're ready to stone him, which essentially, the people are ready to put Moses on trial. Judge, jury, executioner. And murder him. Sentence Moses to death. But Moses' whole point is, you're not actually putting me on trial. You're putting God on trial. And listen to what God says. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, Moses, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And that's exactly what happened. God himself stood before Moses, and Moses lifted up the staff and struck the rock, and water came out. Moses named the place Massa, which means testing, and Mirabah, which means quarreling. It was named after the wickedness of the people as a reminder. They essentially blamed God for leading them out to die of thirst. Think about this. They're accusing Moses and essentially accusing God to murder them and their livestock and their children. They're accusing God of murdering them. And what does God do? He meets their need. Moses takes the staff he used to strike the Nile River and now strikes a rock at Horeb and out comes water. God shows remarkable patience with his people. It's a way in which God provides for us. He is patient with us. And he provides for them even when they put him on trial for their suffering. This is telling us something about the character of God. Now in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five small loaves and two fish. And in John 6 verse 30, the people ask Jesus for proof. Why should we believe you? They say to Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? He just actually did a bunch of stuff by multiplying loaves and fish, but that's not enough. What else would you do to prove to us? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, they say. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. In verse 36, Jesus says, But I said this to you that have seen me, and yet do not believe. Jesus is not bread for the stomach, but bread for the soul. He's the one sent from heaven as a sign of God's provision and God's patience, that when you eat of this bread, you shall be fully satisfied. What's more, he says, and you'll never thirst again. Just two chapters earlier in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking with a woman beside a well. He asks her for a drink and then goes on to speak with her. And here's what he says. The Samaritan asks for some of this living water. You you say you have living water, teacher. I would like some of that. 
just like the men questioning Jesus in John 6. Give us some of that bread. Give us some of this water. Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the well that he's pulling from, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what's happening here in the wilderness? In a practical sense, God is providing for the needs of his people by providing for them water. But it's pointing to something. Moses took the staff and struck the rock so that the people could have water to quench their thirst. And Jesus is the rock who was struck so that we could not just have our mouths satisfied, but our souls satisfied with living and eternal life. This is how the Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 5. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still grumblers, Christ died for us. While we were still quarreling with him, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ was struck so that we could be saved. Let's not overlook this reality that one of the primary ways that God provides for us is that he's patient with us. Point number four, and promise these last two go quick. The fourth way that God provides for us, he fights for us. Look at verse uh, eight of chapter 17. The Amalekites initiate a fight with Israel. Now there's lots of fights we'll see in the Old Testament, lots of battles between Israel and, and other nations. This is the only one recorded for us here in Exodus. And this one's interesting. Amalek sees an opportunity to attack Israel. We talked about this before. One of the reasons God led them on this roundabout way out of Egypt, where they came to the Red Sea, was to protect them from nations who would see them as an easy target. And here, Amalek sees them as an easy target. So Moses tells Joshua, who we get to meet for the first time, uh, we'll learn more about him another time, tells Joshua to go raise some fighting men and go out and meet Amalek on the battlefield, and he does. Moses stands atop the hill overlooking this battlefield, his staff in his hand, and he holds it up above his head. And as Moses holds the staff above his head, Joshua and his men gain ground on Amalek and his men. And when Moses' arms get tired and his staff falls, Amalek gains ground against Joshua. I don't care how long you can hold your hands above your head. I was going to say, if we had time, we should all just try it, right? How long can you keep your hands up for the duration of the sermon? But you'd all feel awkward about that, so I'm not going to do it. I don't care how strong you are, your arms are going to get tired. So Aaron and Hur sit Moses down on a rock and help him by holding up his arms so that his, his arms can be holding that staff above his head And eventually, all day long, at the end of the day, Joshua overwhelms Amalek and his people in battle. Why is this significant? I mean, Joshua is the one who's fighting, right? It's his sword, it's his swing, it's his little army of fighters. What Moses standing there with the staff over the battlefield represents and reminds is that the victory doesn't belong to Joshua doesn't belong to Moses. The staff in Moses' hand 
is representative of God's own authority. He gave it to Moses back at the beginning and said, you go before Pharaoh with this. The staff that swallowed serpents, the staff that struck the Nile, it's an extension of God's own hand. And so for Moses to hold the staff over the battlefield is a declaration to say, this battle and its victory belongs to God. God just happened to use Joshua and his sword as his chosen instrument, but the victory was his. Look at verse 15. Moses builds an altar after the battle to commemorate the victory, and he says this, The Lord is my banner. The banner is the the flag that would wave above a company or above a family or above a tribe. And Moses is saying, Our banner is Yahweh. The Lord is the flag that we wave over our lives. He is the victor. We are His. The Lord fought for Israel and the Lord fights for us. And let me be really clear. God has no intention to make nice with our enemies or His enemies. He fights them and destroys them. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes this, We are in a battle, but not a battle with an army of Amalekites, but a battle against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's where this is relevant for us. For anyone who would say they are a Christian, we must recognize our enemies. Anything that weakens our trust in God or loosens our grip on Christ is your enemy. Anything that tightens your grip on sin is your enemy. Anything that makes God's word taste bitter instead of sweet is your enemy. Anything or anyone that captures your heart or your mind or your affections more than God, our definition of idolatry, is your enemy. And so we need to recognize our enemies and trust that God is out to destroy all the things that would destroy us. God fights for us. And he sends us human errands and hers to encourage us and hold us up. That is a feature, by the way, of community, of gospel-rich community. And ultimately, God the Father sends Jesus, his only son, a better Joshua, to crush the head of our enemies. Jesus, who's a better Moses, one who doesn't get tired or weary, whose arms don't droop, who is interceding. Jesus is right now praying for his people. So that in our battles we might endure. That we might come out as overcomers and victors on the other side. How does God provide for us? He fights for us. And finally, how does God provide for us? The fifth and final provision we see is He provides wisdom. We come to Jethro in chapter 18. Jethro, if you remember, is Moses' father-in-law. And he comes out to meet Moses. Moses has sent away his wife and sons they did not go with him into egypt and so they come out with their with jethro to meet moses and moses bows down to jethro kisses him out of respect news of what had happened in egypt had now likely reached far and wide and we read that jethro says this exodus chapter 18 verse 10 read with me jethro says blessed be the lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. 
Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Stop there. Jethro, a priest of the Midianites, makes a good confession about who Yahweh really is. Multiple commentaries note that what is likely happening right here is that Jethro is making a public profession of faith away from the gods of Midian, now to honor and worship Yahweh. Verse 12 says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought out a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. God's mission of blessing his people so that they would be a blessing to the nations was already happening as a priest of Midian now offers worship to the one true God. Now that's just a cool side note. Just put that in your pocket for later. This is what God said he would do, right? God would rescue his people so that his name would be known and by extension, worshipped in all the earth. And here is some of that promise coming to fruition with Moses' father-in-law. Now what comes next is interesting. If we, if we pulled what came next from Jethro's words and what Moses does from like an organizational leadership structure, we could pull it from its context and present it as a short TED Talk on delegation of leadership. Hi, my name is Jethro. Welcome to my TED Talk. That's kind of how this is used. In fact, I have read multiple articles and other things where what happens here is referred to as the Jethro Principle. I just think that's funny. Maybe just me. Moses here is God's man, right? He's chosen to lead the people. And one of the tasks that Moses has to do that we're finding out about now is that day in and day out, Moses sits and all the people, all of them, line up and come to him with their complaints and their questions and their quarrels amongst each other. And it's Moses' job to sit there, to hear all those things, and then to help them decide well, who's right. Help them decide quarrels between them. Teach them, here's what God has to say to you in this situation. And Jethro, a man of wisdom, asks Moses, why do you do this? It's a great question. We should all have people in our lives who are asking us that question. Why are you doing what you're doing? Again, that one's for free. Then he tells him, what you are doing is not good. It's too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Jethro says in chapter 18, right in the middle of verse 19, he says, Moses, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Jethro is giving Moses some practical advice. And so Moses puts it into practice. What Jethro was seeing, that Moses was on the path to burnout. You can't handle all of this. You need to find some faithful, trustworthy, those who aren't easily bribed men who love God and fear God and help can help you by helping deal with the smaller matters. 
If anything's big, it should come to you. And Moses, you're still responsible to lead the people, to to tell them about God's statutes and his rules and his commands. But you can't do this alone. So God, through Jethro, provides wisdom for Moses. Look at verse 23 of of chapter 18. If you do this, Jethro says, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all this people will all, excuse me and all this people also will go to their place in peace one of the ways god provides is through wise counsel proverbs 15 says that without counsel plans fail but with many advisors they succeed now proverbs is not saying that your plans will always succeed the way you think they will But in the pursuit of accomplishing your plans, there is wisdom in seeking the counsel of many people, not just a few. It is God's grace to provide us with many counselors. So let me just say, if you're not in the habit of seeking wise counsel from other godly and mature believers in Jesus about significant decisions in your life, you are missing a significant means by which God cares for you and provides for you. Far too often, we make our own plans. We might speak to a few people, but likely it's just people in our own echo chambers who are going to just agree with us and sign off on our ideas. And then what happens when those plans are solidified enough in our minds is then we just inform everybody else of said decision and ask them, de facto force them to just baptize our decision with their blessing. I don't want to press too hard on that, but I think that's generally the MO. It should be the rule rather than the exception. That a big decision for us about a future spouse, about a job opportunity, about moving to a new city, about how to resolve that relationship conflict or or how to deal with a a very significant situation should be the rule that those things would be known, would be covered in prayer, and that we would not only be receptive to, but we would seek out feedback and insight and wisdom and perspective from others. Let me ask this. Are there situations in your life that you think probably would have gone a lot differently if wise counsel was sought on the front end rather than on the back? I don't know about you, but I can start making a list myself. Right? And it doesn't need to be an elder or a pastor. Any fellow believer who knows and loves God's word can be a rich source of wisdom and encouragement because We are now in Christ, and Christ is in us, right? Jesus Christ, who Paul says is the power of God and the wisdom of God, is at work through his people to provide for his people. This is one way that God provides for us, through the wisdom and maturity and experience of others, especially from those with whom you're in community, fellow members in your local church. We need wisdom to know when to take on extra responsibility and when to delegate. We need wisdom to know when to speak and when to listen. We need wisdom to know how to choose between two good options. We need wisdom as we pursue unity together as one body. And God delights to provide the wisdom that we need. And sometimes provides it in unexpected ways. 
like a newly converted pagan father-in-law to Moses, right? See, over and over again, God is showing himself as a God who provides. So the question I want us to ask ourselves as we uh, close this chapter and look at the next couple is this. Do we trust him? Do we trust him that he's going to provide for our every day? Do we trust that what he's telling us is good for us? It sets the stage for all the commands and the law of God that God will give Israel next. Are we going to trust him? That what he's telling us about worshiping him alone, about maybe we shouldn't murder people, that these are actually good things that God's telling us. Do we trust him? Do we, do we, do we believe that he'll provide for us every day? And if we find ourselves grumbling, it might be an indicator that our trust is someplace else. But the God who saved us will also sustain us. The God who purchased us will also provide for us. So we follow him by faith.